Hey, Tom here. This is a bonus episode of The Briefing brought to you by Ben and Jerry's. So, David, lovely to meet you. Thank you very much. This time last year, I was sitting in a room in a London hotel face-to-face with David Attenborough. I know that sounds like a, a bit of a brag, but look, it was probably the best day of my life. Young people see things very clearly. They are speaking very clearly to the politicians. But if they actually do something in the way that they have been doing then politicians have to sit up and and, and take notice. And they are important. They're the people who are going to inherit the mess that we've made. A month after that conversation, Greta Thunberg gave this historic speech in New York. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? The same week as that speech, several million school children around the world left their classrooms and hit the streets calling for stronger action on climate change. This is not an inner city issue or a greenie issue. This is not a young person's issue or a wealthy person's issue. This is an everybody issue. In Australia, organisers estimated around 300,000 people took to the streets to protest. And one of the leaders of the protests in Australia was 15-year-old Jean Hinchliffe. Stop! Adani! Stop! Stop! Adani! Stop! Adani! Stop! Stop! Adani! Stop! Adani! Stop! Stop! Adani! Jean is now 16. She's in year 11. She's still at the forefront of the school strike for climate movement. And she joins us right now on The Briefing to tell you where she thinks the climate movement will go next during the pandemic and post the pandemic. Jean, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been about a year since I've spoken to you. Mm. I spoke to you around the time of those protests. How are you doing? I'm good. <laughs> um, it's been a crazy, crazy journey. Um, I mean, we, we had all the bushfires and all this momentum and then suddenly COVID and it's been this mix of trying to navigate school and life and friendships with this pandemic as well as now suddenly having to completely change the activism I do and, and the way that I work with people. But I think um, everyone's lives have kind of been upturned by this. But um, yeah, it, it's been a really interesting time. Yeah, and that's exactly what I want to talk to you about, how things have changed from, you know, both the impact of the bushfires, but also the pandemic. Let's talk more about that sense of momentum last year. Take us back to September last year when those hundreds of thousands of young people took to the streets how did you feel about that? What was it like for you personally? And where did you see things going from there? It was insane. I don't think I've ever been able to fully process it. It was the most surreal moment of my life, standing up on that stage and seeing about 80,000 people here in Sydney because there's so many people and everyone's yelling and and there's all these signs and it's so many young people coming together that my brain couldn't process it. It was It was just too big and it was even more intense to be considering that it, less than a year before that, we had the first climate strike in Sydney. And I remember organising that and thinking that if we did really, really well, we might get about 1,000 people <laughs> and then 5,000 showed up. And then we had March 15 and thought if we did really, really well, but we're not going to say this anywhere because it's unlikely we're going to get it, we'll get 10,000 people. And then um, 30,000 showed up and 150,000 nationally. And then that uh, grew massively again for September 20. And it just felt like this exponential momentum was happening. And I know particularly after September 20, all these new people were getting involved. And as the bushfires happened, which was these 
awful and tragic times, but I'd never seen anything like it mobilize people in those numbers before. I mean, there was this rally at Town Hall and it was organized in about a week and 40,000 people showed up. That wasn't happening even a, a few months prior. Even The school strikes took months and months and months to organize, but suddenly we had this momentum where people would hear about something and they wanted to show up and they wanted to make a difference. Could you honestly say you're disappointed that the pandemic has come and kind of slowed that momentum? I wouldn't say disappointed because I think um, it's fair that people have to care about their lives. I mean, people... Survival, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like people, well, short-term survival. Yeah. I guess I mean, versus long-term survival, yeah. which is what the climate debate's about. Mm, because it, it's a global crisis. The issue is that when it's... Because obviously it's super important. We need to care about it and we need to take action. Um, but we have another global crisis happening at the exact same time, which is also getting worse. Sounds like you're conscious not to lecture people too much. It's a tricky... Dance, I think, in this space. I, it definitely is because I think that if I were to say that, oh, like you clearly don't care about anything and look at you just ruining the world to an average person who is just trying to figure out how to navigate life now that they don't have a job and now that everything's been upturned, it, it is hard to do that. I think that um, the responsibility lies on politicians and those other people I'm enormously disappointed in because... They've taken this opportunity to push for a gas-led recovery, um, to continue ignoring this crisis that has been happening the entire time. Um, they're the people that shouldn't be sweeping it under the rug and they're the people that shouldn't be taking advantage of this moment where people aren't paying attention as much to push for this, this recovery, which is enormously worsening the climate crisis that we're in already. I want to talk through the, the upside and the downside of the pandemic on the climate movement. Mm. We'll step through both sides because yeah. there are positives and negatives. I mean, it's completely taken that conversation out of the public sphere that you were having a year ago. People are in an economic crisis. And I imagine that when we're called to make potentially economic sacrifices for the, the betterment of the planet, that's going to be a lot harder mm. when we're dealing with a depression. You mentioned before that the government's already talking about a gas-led economic recovery. Those must be things that really concern you. Definitely, definitely. I think it definitely has been negative in where the conversation has gone. I, I think that that it definitely hasn't aided the movement in that way. But I do think there have been positives coming out of it in, in how we organise and how we work. So I do think it's hard to say whether it is net negative or net positive, because I think it's just different. You know, we're, yep. we're still able to find ways to take action, but it is different. It's just sort of being hard and being something we're trying to adjust to. But um, I think that looking at it in a broader sense, outside of just our movement individually and how we work, but looking at it on this sort of global level in particular. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah it, that's it what I'm talking about yeah, because yeah. you can look at the positives on, on the bigger picture as well, like the actual impact on our world rather than just mm. on the movement that you've been a part of. Emissions have come down because less people are traveling. We're using less energy. So that's a short-term thing, mm. but it's positive. The other thing that's going on is that we're rethinking the way we live. Mm. And I think a lot of people are living more efficiently, but also throwing open the books on how we do things, mm, totally. whether we work from home, commuting, those sorts of things, um, the way we live. So there's a massive opportunity there for a rethink as well and potentially for people to shift their mind frame. I mean, you can see historically, whenever there have been enormous changes to the way that we live, then that's when we can have this social progress and we can totally rethink things because 
coming out of this, we have seen the world stop and the world completely change. And, and the fact is that the short-term reduction in emissions is nowhere near enough to curb the climate crisis or to have that much of an impact. We need to be changing it in so many more ways and much more dramatic and concrete actions. But I and think systematic that, ways. Totally, yeah. totally. I think that um, people seeing how drastically the world can change and how we can adapt and how, as we all work together, we can curb crises and, and we can we can transform the way we go about day-to-day life. I, I think that it does open up opportunities and allows people to see that, okay, this doesn't have to be a big scary thing. This can be us realizing that we can progress to a better future in a way that is sustainable for everyone. You're listening to a special bonus episode of The Briefing. I'm interviewing 16-year-old climate activist Jean Hinchliffe. It's been a really interesting moment to look at what happens when an economy slows down because Mm. I think there was this prevailing view that if you slow the economy, particularly when you're weighing up environmental concerns versus economic concerns, that that any sort of backward step on economic growth in our societies will be catastrophic. But we've seen that. We're seeing the whole world go into an economic recession right now. We're still here. We're still surviving. Mm. Um, It's going to hurt for a lot of people. People actually lose their lives because of the economic problems as well as the health problems. But it's sort of shaken off this boogeyman about slowing down economic growth and that, you know, somehow the world would stop turning. I also think what's interesting about it is that countries, I mean, you see somewhere like New Zealand where they see that this is an issue. As soon as it started getting bad at all, they went into this full-scale lockdown, which obviously has quite negative impacts for the economy. But they'll take this sudden needed drastic action and then they're able to get back to life and have this economic recovery. Um, and obviously they're going back into lockdown again, but they take the steps required. And that's similar to the climate crisis because we're going to need to invest in things and we're going to need to to change our economic systems in, in a more sustainable way. But the amount that will cost and, and what will come out of that transition is saving us enormous amounts of money from the impacts of the climate crisis. Because as the climate crisis worsens, we see more and more um, enormous scale, more intense natural disasters. We see species decline leading to ecological collapse, which leads to food insecurity. We see so many issues in so many sectors of society that it will cost us enormous amounts of money that it's so hard to picture right now. And the thing is that transitioning to renewables and transitioning to a sustainable way of life makes sense if you're looking at it even outside of the climate crisis. It makes economic sense. It is cheaper eventually. Um, it is, it, it's sort of the way that the world is progressing. It's where the technology is. Honestly, as Australia, if we don't uh, start moving down this transition, we're going to have a Kodak moment of being totally stuck in the past and realising that we've missed out on this incredible economic sector that we, that we didn't invest in. And I think that, yeah, just the, the negatives that come out of not going down this transition outside the climate crisis are enormous. And then when you factor in the climate crisis, it's this this giant thing that it, it is so illogical to not take action. It, it just doesn't make sense. Well, we are taking action. <laughs> it's just a question of how much mm. and how fast. So what do you want to see our, our government do? Well, every country worldwide should be committing to staying below one and a half degrees of warming. Um, 
I think that our government, well, there's the school strike demands to begin with, um, it's full renewable energy and exports by 2030, no new sources of fossil fuels, including the Adani mine, and um, a just transition and job creation for all fossil fuel employed workers. So there are a lot of ways that the government can take action. I think a lot of it is broadening public investment in renewables, um, prevent subsidies um, and support for new fossil fuel projects, um, having that transition. There are uh, carbon tax as well, also is really great. I think there's a lot of ways to take action. It's just a matter of doing it. A lot of the specifics can kind of be dumbed down to the fact that we need to take a certain amount of action by a certain time. Um, you see the UN report, which gave us a deadline until uh, of 2030 to take this action. And it, it takes this global recognition of this as a crisis and to see that we need to do something and it is everybody's responsibility. It is a drastic change, but it, it's something we need to do. And even without the context of the climate crisis, it makes sense to do. So one of the, the big political sticking points in this debate is the coal industry and jobs in coal. And, and clearly, as you've outlined, a big focus for your movement is to reduce our reliance on coal, but it still provides really well-paying jobs, somewhere up towards 50,000 jobs. And this was really interesting in last year's election where you had people like Matt Canavan for the government, you know, sticking up for jobs in Queensland, um, jobs in coal, jobs that support a lot of regional communities. You had the Greens promising... 180,000 jobs in the renewable sector, but no real plan to get there. Now, I noticed that the third point is about a transition for those communities. So how do you solve that problem? We've got about 15,000 jobs in renewables at the moment, but we're going to need more and they're going to need to be steady jobs that are well paid to be able to make those workers Mm. feel like they have a secure future. Yeah. And it's hard to say exactly because part of this just transition means that we're going to need investment on um, a local, a state, a federal level. And it is something which unions and which workers also need to have their say and say, like, this is what we want or this is how we want this transition to happen. So there's a lot of conversation around job guarantees for um, current fossil fuel employed workers, lots of stuff like that. But I think what is really core to it is recognising that as a climate movement, we see that these jobs are important and we see that these workers they aren't our enemy. They're just people who are trying to have a job and and support their family and go about their lives. And we want them to not be left behind in this transition. They are really integral to this. Jen, I wonder if you think there's ever been any mistakes made by the climate movement. There was one interesting example that comes to mind, which was last year's Bob Brown Stop Adani convoy, where a bunch of activists drove up through New South Wales into Queensland to tell them not to go ahead with this coal mine. Do you think mistakes have been made in the movement? And was that one of them? I don't know all the specifics of that, but I think that um, the main thing that's important is having conversations with people who are employed in the fossil fuel sector um, and communicating that this isn't their fault and we're not blaming it on them. It is government action. It is enormous corporations. It isn't these individual workers' fault. And I think that there have been mistakes within the climate movement where that message isn't communicated well and where it feels as though we're demonising people who are just trying to work and just trying to live their lives. You know? Make a living. Yeah, make a living. Put food and on the table. Totally, totally. And I think that's something that we have looked at. I know as a school strike movement, particularly when we're young people all coming together initially, it's something that I personally didn't know that much about. Um, 
And it's something where I know just personally the way of thinking about it, it is something that has evolved as I've become more a part of this movement and as I've had these conversations and as we've reflected um, together on, on our messaging and, and how we navigate space in an intersectional way. But I think that it is something where more and more people are, are realising not just how we should be navigating this conversation, but how we should be making change in a way that's fair and, and that's just, you know. Um, and inclusive. I, totally, I think totally. that's important because if you you alienate people, you create more polarisation mm. and that's how you end up with stagnation. Completely, completely. Because this movement doesn't work if it's not inclusive. We need to show everybody that they have a place in the movement and that this transition shouldn't be something that leaves anybody behind. Everybody should feel like like this movement is for them and for their futures and for helping them. And I think all areas within the climate movement need to be aware of that and, and need to make sure that they're showing all these workers that we want them to do well and we want them to end up in a good place with this transition. Jean, just lastly, how do you manage all of this and just being in year 11 and being <laughs> a, a normal 16-year-old girl? I will be completely honest. I'm very bad at it. Um, <laughs> I have real poor time management skills. But um, Really? But you really? get so much done. You're um, writing a book. <laughs> you're leading a climate movement. And I imagine you're passing your subjects in year 11. Yeah. Um, I've had points. I know at the end of last um, term, I had this week where I procrastinated on a few assignments. And then I also had a bit of my book due. And then I also had the school strike projects happening. And I ended up pulling like, I think two and a half all-nighters that week. Wow. Um, Most people sort of get into that in the uni years, not, yeah. not like year 11. <laughs> it's something I'm getting better at. I am working to sort of save not just my future, but the, the whole world's future and also um, help people who are already facing the devastating impacts of the climate crisis. And when I see just like another English assignment I need to get in, it, it's sometimes hard to value that as much because it feels less real and less tangible, but also... um. I think I'm getting better at sort of trying to navigate it and realize like, okay, this is important. And not only should I be doing this work to help others, but um, I deserve to prioritize myself at points and yeah. care about school and learn and continue all that. And I, I know that um, lots of school strike people uh, find it hard at first to sort of make that balance, but then a, a lot do. And I mean, you have Vasha Yajman who um, still works at school strike and she graduated last year and she got like a 98 ATAR, something like that. She's... Mm insanely smart and I I remember in meetings before September 20 um we were having this massive planning meeting and she was doing maths homework as we were all having wow. this conversation yeah. well I think it's actually symbolic of the bigger climate fight that you're having that you you still have to think about how you live your life on a day-to-day -day basis and get the mm. practical things done i.e for people in coal mining communities feeding their families but then you need to look at the big long-term issues we're facing as a society and somehow do both, and that's yeah. that's what it's all about, and that's yeah. the tricky part. Yeah, it's hard, but we can do it. We definitely can do it. Jean, great to speak to you again. Thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a really great conversation. A Podcast One production.